sorry. I just, I still feel like a little weird. That's <laughs> uh, a heavy movie. Um, it's really it weird is. to transition from, like, even thinking about this movie to anything else. Um, I recently saw that, uh, God, this just sounds so weird going into this. Um, there was a, uh, uh, Nicolas Cage... Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the weekly movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are hanging tight in uh, San Diego. That's right. And you, Cassidy Robinson, are broadcasting from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. Yes. I I think whenever you say that, people assume that I'm like burrowed in some sort of like tree hut or something or a cave of some sort. Mm. And I'm okay with that. I guess we should start where we left off before we started recording, where yeah, you we were, were... We were having a bit of a discussion. We were having uh, a bit a bit of an off-air programming uh, discussion that we thought, maybe this is worth everybody else hearing. So, literally last night, the night before we're recording, mm-hmm. I went to a movie theater and uh, I saw the new Christopher Nolan movie, Tenet. Yes. Um, you you haven't seen it yet um, because no. it's currently only playing in theaters, and the, the yes. whole theater situation is a little mm-hmm. weird. Uh, so that's what we are discussing. We're discussing um, sort of the the ethics of reopening theaters at the Mo, mm-hmm. um, and you know how safe it may or may not actually be. Right. So. Uh, let, let me give you a little clarification on... Okay, our can, I, the, can I state my side of the argument first before sure. you clarify? Also, so our listeners know, we're not reviewing Tenet because you no. haven't seen it yet. That, that will be a future episode. This week yes. we are reviewing Bill and Ted Face the Music and yes. uh, uh, the streaming homework was uh, Dear Zachary, a letter to a son about a father, which is currently streaming on Amazon. So Yes, a documentary from 2008 um, that we talked about last week in our documentary discussion, which has also been uh, requested by friend of the show, Ashley, years ago. Yeah, so that is going to be the official movie discussion. This is, Mm -hmm. I saw Tenet on my own time, on my own dime. Uh, Okay. So that's the situation. Go ahead and and lay your side out. And then I'll explain a little bit more about what I felt about the screening last night. Right. Which I assume is the first movie in the theater you've attended since uh, February or March, right? Yeah. The last movie I saw in theaters before this was... Uh, uh, Onward, know. right? Yeah. That was the last movie I saw. Yeah, it was onward and yeah. and even then, I mean, the pandemic was known. It was uh, uh, like I had friends that were like, "You're going to see a movie right now." It was like it was like the right. week before they closed theaters. I mean, it's crazy to think how much the world changed in a week. Mm-hmm. 
Like I, you know, we went from feeling totally comfortable living our normal lives to, you know, panic at the Costco, crazy toilet paper rushes, everybody out for themselves, zombie apocalypse land. Yeah. So um, now things are getting... <laughs> now we're in some other phase of the post-apocalypse and uh, uh, it may actually be worse. But um, so here's my thing. I want to see Tenet. I'm very excited to see Tenet. It's getting kind of mixed reviews, but I sort of expected that given uh, everything I'm about to say. But, uh, you know, earlier in the year when we talked about films that we were excited to see this year, had we'd had a normal movie year, um, Tenet was pretty close to the top of my list up there with uh, the new Dune remake, which, you know, hasn't had an official release date set yet. But, you know, I like to think I'm not a virologist or a uh, an epidemiologist, but I've read pretty much everything there is to read on the subject of the coronavirus and COVID-19. Um Based upon, you know, the updating information that's, you know, always still updating because this is a novel virus. We don't really know how it works. There's still a lot of question marks. Um, You know, we went at the beginning of the year with wash your hands. And now we're at like, this could be airborne. Um, So I kind of know that the most dangerous situations are being in enclosed spaces with low ventilation and with... uh, air conditioning that can move particles and stuff around, i.e. movie theaters. And as much as I like movies, I've built my life kind of around it. I don't super feel safe in a movie theater yet of any kind, unless it's a drive-in theater. And I know like Bill and Ted, for example, did have a bit of a drive-in rollout as well. Mm. I saw it at home, but there are places that are showing it in the drive-in, which would be cool. Um, And also ethical. Yes. Um, oh, okay. So, and that's my that's also my second beef with Tenant is that in America specifically, and if you're listening from not America, I am so jealous. But in America specifically, uh, we pretty much aren't doing anything to slow down the spread of the virus at all. Um, it's going out of control, uh, secretly. Behind, I don't, I don't want to say secretly. I, in fact, you know, I'm not even going to finish this sentence because it sounds too conspiratorial. But more or less, it's every man for themselves. And if in, in it's live life at your own risk right now. And kind of, you can kind of know, you know, preventative measures for yourself. So if you're out shopping, things like that, it's a good idea to wear a mask. I wear, I specifically wear eye protective gear because i know that that is also a means of transmission um i wash my hands every time i come home from anywhere i do all the things i do all the recommended things but on top of not feeling personally comfortable going to a movie theater and i talked you know i said if i went to an early enough screening i'm in a small town I guarantee I could probably end up in it. If I went on like a, you know, a Tuesday morning or something like that, I could probably end up seeing a showing with maybe three other people. And the likelihood of me breathing in their air would be very, very low. However, I would still have to worry, which I'm afraid, you know, going back to your story of freaking out at Django Unchained and how that ruined the movie going experience for you. That's fair. um, Because you thought there might have been a live shooter there. You know, this would be a kind of similar situation where I I don't even know if I could give a great review of it because my mind would only be 
at best 70% on the movie. And then on top of it, I'm annoyed by the movie theaters, AMC specifically, and Legendary and the uh, the studios that are, and Christopher Nolan, frankly, pushing this release out. I think this is a bubble test. I think they're trying to see how how much, uh, how big a movie can be and how much they can okay. make I, from it. And then from, the, from that assessment, mm-hmm. decide whether or not they want to start rolling out movies more and more and whether they want to start bullying theaters um, to reopen to white, bigger and bigger audiences. Okay. All right. Few th- because few th- we've yeah, basically yeah, yeah, I, seen that model of, you know, all the way down to letting s- schools reopen. Yes. We've basically seen that model time and time again since about May when the lockdown pretty much ended. Okay. Uh, That's my side. So here's the thing. I agree with a lot of things you're saying. And and I'm not trying to convince people that they should go to the movies right now. Like, uh, And I'm not trying to convince people that they shouldn't. Because I, I, I'm I, not like, – I don't think of you as like a bad person because you went and saw this movie. Um, I'm just yeah, telling so, you the reasons why I don't want to. And, and I think all those reasons are perfectly valid. Uh, and uh, I, I'm just trying to – to let you know that it's probably safer than you than you think. That's all I'm trying to say is uh, so AMC specifically um, has had to have certain guidelines that they could meet before they could reopen their theaters. One of them is uh, changing the air filters because they found that like a certain kind of air filter with um, like. Uh, central air, you know, air conditioning units is a lot more effective than a lot of the air filters that were in stores and stuff right now. Um, so your cycled air probably is not not as much of an issue as it would have been six months ago, right? Uh, second thing is the theaters right now are are only opened in limited capacities. So uh, for AMC, that means currently they can only fill up to 25% capacity of the seats. That And that means uh, they're, they're blocking off seats in between people who've purchased seats. So if you bought a ticket right now, the seats next to you would be open. Um, I, so one of the things when I went was I went to buy tickets and I was like, Oh shit! This theater looks really full, and and that made me very nervous. Uh, so then I called them, and I was like, "So you know, what kind of precautions are you guys taking in place?" And one of them is that they blocked a set amount of seats off. Uh, it looked like they were purchased online, but they weren't. There were eight people in our theater. Uh, sure. Yeah. So there's a certain amount of seats that are grayed out or whatever when you go to select. Yeah. Your seat. So there's a certain yeah. amount of space between you and the other patrons and and we know from the science that uh, space between you and other people is a big factor for transmission. So if you're maintaining your distance, you're much less likely to get uh, to get the virus. Also, uh, if you wear a mask and if they're wearing masks, that significantly reduces the risks. Now I understand, uh, you know. It, in a movie theater, it's dark. People are, some people are already have been fighting the masks anyway. 
mm-hmm. um, stupidly. So I'm certain people will take their masks off in the theaters. That's not something you can guarantee, which is frustrating. Um, so, you know, that is a huge thing is you can't control other people. Right. And um, on top of it, people are still buying concession and eating. So obviously their mask isn't on their face. They're shoveling popcorn in their f- mouth. So the the theater we went to specifically, it was like one of the high end movie theaters that has like the reclining seats and there's already a lot of space between seats. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's not like, like sort of the normal movie theater going experience where you could be just be like t- literally touching your seat neighbor. Like there is space between each seat. Um, and again, I knew the theaters were very limited capacity. Now that being said, uh, this particular movie theater sells uh, you know, dinner and drinks that they deliver to your to your seats. So, yeah. you know, people are definitely taking their masks off. They are eating. I personally felt like there was enough space between me and every other person because of like where the seats I got were that I, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was b- taking a crazy risk. Also, this was the first night the theater had been open. So I, you know, I knew not a lot of people would be buying tickets. I just like, because right. California's had even stricter mandates and they, they finally said, you know, uh, the area I'm in is, uh, uh, we've been, our numbers have been declining. So we are a lower risk. That's the other thing I would say about where you're at in particular. There have been less documented cases there you do have a much lower population it's much more rural um that combined with the amount of space that is likely to be between you and any other person you're probably fine that's all i'm saying i'm not trying to convince you to go i'm not trying to i'm just saying it's probably lower risk than you think but i also understand the factor of like if that's going to be on your mind the whole time that you can't even enjoy the movie, then it's definitely not worth it. Like the point of going to a movie is to be able to escape and to enjoy it and, and, and such. So, uh, I'm just saying, I think it, you know, it's probably if you're really wanting to get out to a theater right now, now is probably the safest time to do it because theaters are operating in a limited capacity. Now, Speaking to sort of the cynical capitalist uh, issues that you have with the release, uh, you know, theaters have to be at such limited capacity that Tenet is going to be operating at a loss. Uh, if, no, if absolutely. He, if whole- he really wanted this movie to be the huge blockbuster, the, you know, he should yeah. just have rescheduled the release date for... Question like mark. everyone else did. Like everyone yeah. else did. Yes. So I know I, for, for Christopher Nolan, I know his reasoning, or the, at least what he's developed in his mind as a reasoning, is that he wants to see this in a theater and he wants people to see his vision in the way that he imagined it on, you know, 70 millimeter, sure. blah, 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 blah. I totally get it. I, I, I don't think that he is operating under this idea specifically that like, you know, fuck everybody. I want to make money because he is going to take a loss. Everyone's going to take a loss. The on The studio movie. is going to take a huge What I'm loss. afraid of is that they're using Tenet because it was such a hot movie and it was, it has a hot director who can, you know, have a huge weekend no matter what. 
to see how well it does under the conditions. I mean, no matter what, it's going to be a loss. But if so, they can justify, well, there's an audience and people are willing to take the risk. Well, maybe we'll go from 25% capacity to 35. And yeah, oh, okay. maybe so, we'll move it up to 45. And then maybe we'll start opening every night. And maybe we'll have multiple screens showing the movie until by Christmas, it's just a free-for-all. And it's a giant COVID party so, in every auditorium. So, uh, let me speak to that, because that is their plan. They are, you know, right now it is a test rollout of 25%. Uh, then they are planning on increasing to 35%. Yes. Uh, and so, currently, the plan is, and I do agree with you that I think this is very premature, and I think this is going to change. The plan is for the, for theaters to be operating at full capacity by Thanksgiving, which I think is madness. That is way too soon. That is, uh, and I won't be going to theaters when they're at full capacity. Um, I think now, while they're taking the extra shifts to clean, and and, and uh, I think now, if you feel comfortable with it, and I know you know you in particular are going to be a higher risk group than I am um, because of your. You know, like you have some like asthma issues and stuff like that that I that I don't have, so I'm not as concerned. Uh, you know, uh, I I mean, granted, I don't want to get it and I don't want to spread it, certainly, um, mm-hmm. and I am taking personal precautions to try not to. But I don't think that right now there is anything wrong if you feel comfortable with being a part of this test group and and going to see a theater. And because here's the thing. You know, that's the only way we'll know if the precautions they're taking are enough. Um, and, and it is entirely possible that they might not be. And that, that you're right. Like, theaters could just become these massive hotspots for COVID. And I think if if they were prove if they are showing to be, they will get closed down again very quickly. Uh, so... I guess that's sort of where I'm at. In this particular scenario, I felt pretty comfortable. I still will probably, like, if I'm going to movies in the future, it will probably be on a weeknight. It will probably be at a matinee when I feel like, you know, there's going to be less people there. Because, again, I think all the things you're saying are valid. Yeah, I don't know yet. I'm not there. Uh, I uh, will see. I want to see it. And maybe if I can arrange something where I know there's going to be nobody else or very few people in the auditorium, then I might. But, uh, yeah, I'm just saying things to consider. If you're at if you're an at risk group or you are one of those people who have medical condition that they can't wear a mask, which I don't believe is real, but whatever, Um, not to be ableist, but. If you can't wear a mask legitimately, you should be staying at home all the time. All right. Well, um, so, you know, pending, there may or may not be a future tenant review. We'll see what happens. But, uh, well, if, uh, I mean, eventually I can tell you my thoughts. If, if you've, if it's not going to happen for you, I can, uh, you know, I can chime in on a, a future episode without getting too detailed. <laughs> Um, the other thing I want to talk about, which is already this episode is entirely way too serious, but (laughs) especially for a Bill and Ted episode, let's, 
Let's say a few words for Chadwick Boseman, who died over the last weekend. <sighs> um, God, yeah. So I feel like uh, it'd be weird not to. Yeah. Uh, my, so my Chadwick Boseman story, um, we were going to go see New Mutants at the drive-in. Um, which is much safer than an actual movie theater. And uh, literally right before we were about to leave, I saw the news, we saw the news and like, it just bummed us out so much. We couldn't even go to the movie. It just sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, so Chadwick Boseman, uh, for those of you who don't know by now, he played Black Panther. He played Jackie Robinson. He played James Brown. Uh, he was just in *The Five Bloods*, uh, Spike which Lee's we re- movie. We reviewed earlier this year. Yeah, he was an icon, and, and he did all of this within you know just a few short years. Within like four to five years, did some of the you know most iconic black characters, and most of those movies he filmed while knowing he had cancer. It's insane. Yeah, and while battling it uh, on and off set. And he pretty much kept it from his public. Um, Most people didn't know, I don't think. And he just kind of trudged through and tried to keep his career afloat. I mean, more than kept his career afloat. He was a rising star. Yeah, he he was A-list. was only going to get bigger um, had this not, you know, cut his life so short, which is, you know, really sad. And, yeah, I mean... I don't really have anything to add to to the whole thing other than to say it sucks and it's yeah. a huge bummer and just an absolute know. tragedy. And and you know, I I think it's worth mentioning that he was a black icon and mm-hmm. uh, the way the Hollywood machine is built, the way the system is, it is it is hard for that kind of a, you know, for a black actor to reach that caliber of celebrity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it is, you know, it is really sad just to, to think of, uh, you know, all of the kids who ha- have to, had to hear about their hero dying. Yeah. It's very sad. Yeah. I just, you know, I pretty much just wanted to say that we acknowledge Chadwick Boseman, his career, his legacy, and, you know, rest in peace and, uh, condolences to his, you know, family and personal friends, people who actually knew him. Yeah. All right. Well, we haven't done movie news in a little while, and there's been quite a few stories to build up. Okay. So I figured we could just kind of jam these out quickly before we head into our reviews. And we'll uh, we'll start down here. Let's see. Which one do we want to do? This one here. Olivia Wilde tapped to direct... Untitled female-centered Marvel movie at Sony. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, they say it's untitled female-led Marvel movie. Um, the the big speculation is it's going to be Spider Woman um, because Sony uh, pretty much only has the right to Spider Man stuff. Yeah, and Olivia Wilde's like tweet or or instagram or whatever was just like a spider emoji so it's definitely something spider related um right you know so spider-man and the thing that makes the most sense is spider woman um she would be a decent spider woman herself if she wanted to star in the film yeah yeah she totally would 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know how you feel about this. I am, I have no issues with Olivia Wilde, and I have no issues with Spider Woman movie. Uh, the the point where my butthole puckers is when it I hear it's Sony. Right. Um, I get. I'm so frustrated with them having this like weird bifurcated ownership of the Marvel universe. Um, uh, because it's just like any character they do is going to have weird baggage and and can't just be like in the MCU proper. Um, so right. That's and it, my and only like um, their first big movie they did after. After uh, Disney Marvel rebooted Spider-Man, the first big movie they tried to do on their own alongside the regular Marvel universe is the Venom movie, Mm -hmm. which was at best mixed results. Um, I mean, it was a hit, you know, it it did very well. It made money. Part of the problem is Venom's a huge character. It was going to make money, but yeah, you know, it was kind of messy. They couldn't mention Spider-Man in it. So it was just this, hanging chad on the whole project yeah i don't know it was a, it was kind of an awkward film for a lot of reasons but that being one of them so if there's a spider woman film are they gonna mention peter parker are they gonna mention any spider-man like direct spider-man references can this ever these two studios ever kind of sew these these different properties together is that even a plan um, yeah, there's a lot up in the air as far as that goes, but, uh, I liked Booksmart a lot, which was Olivia Wilde's first directorial debut. Yeah. So I, I think she's super capable. I think she's really smart. Really I think funny. a, uh, Spider-Woman movie, like, I think there is definitely potential with that property and, and it's, you know, a part of the Spider-Man universe that doesn't get explored a lot and and is pretty neglected when it comes to like film and cartoons and stuff so like honestly spider-woman's a character i don't know a whole lot about Mm -hmm. um i you know i only sort of know kind of the stuff when she crosses over with the the marvel universe writ large um so you know i think it's something that that has potential to make a pretty cool movie that you know um brings a lot of new fans in but uh yeah again my only real issue here is that it's again part of this weird sony solo universe but that might cross over like i don't give two fucks about morbius oh well yeah that's that's in part because of your deep-seated hatred of uh jared leto because he sucks (laughs) but i do i do like olivia wilde more than jared leto so yeah you know i'd be willing to see what the trailer looks like. The next story here, uh, Will Smith and Kevin Hart to star in a Planes, Trains, and Automobiles remake. Well, At which point, sense. I said, didn't they already remake that movie when they made Due Date? I guess. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I mean, it's very similar. Um, yeah, I don't have a problem with this. I feel like it's a little weird that have has Will Smith and Kevin Hart done a movie before? Not that I can think of. I think there might have been a time when Will Smith was the star of something and Kevin Hart was like, you know, a, a walk-on role or something or played a bellboy or something. We just don't know about that. Um, but that, That's my only thing with this is like, I think it makes sense, but it would have made more sense 10 years ago. Like, 
Uh, yeah. Both of their stars have fallen quite a bit. Um, you know. Well, Kevin Hart is still insanely um, famous. Actually, fair. at this point, I think he's probably more famous than Will Smith as far as um, he's maybe not as rich. I don't know. It might be close because Kevin Hart is one of the few like comedians who can sell out multiple days at Madison Square Garden big. No, like, I know. We I, might I know personally not care because it's not our thing or whatever. No, 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 no. But no. That's, that's not he, what I was in the comedy world is about as big as it gets. But he's also, he's had a few controversies that have knocked him down a little bit. Um, eh, I don't think uh, so, really. The, you know, like, I don't know. The stuff about him maybe cheating on his wife was kind of a big deal. The, I know, didn't even hear about that. The His uh, comments about the LGBTQ community. Like, he's, he. I'm just saying... Yes, of course. He is still huge. He is still a huge star. But I think before all of this stuff had kind of, you know, come out about him, he, he would have been huger. And at the time, I, again, Will Smith's star has kind of faded as well. You know, again, he is still That's a inarguable. massive. That is a massive. He is a, still a massive movie star, but he he can't sell a movie on his own name the way he used to be able to and no now he has to be in a trains planes and automobile remake with kevin hart or he has to be you know the the top build in a ensemble superhero thing like suicide squad but I, so, my only point is if this had come out even 5 years ago we're talking biggest movie of the year now sure it'll be fine I personally am not excited about it because it's just an incredibly unoriginal and uninspired idea from the get-go to revive, you know, sort of, I mean, the thing with most comedy, especially character-based comedy, like, like Trains, Planes, and Automobiles, um, which originally had John Candy and Steve Martin, in case nobody knows, it was an 80s thing. Um, Wasn't that a, a John Hughes movie? Yeah, uh, but definitely the, felt like it if it was the thing with the thing with most movies like that is they're kind of lightning in a bottle, and yeah. it's it's about the time and the place, the moment, the the star power, you know, the the script, everything kind of coming together in just the right way because comedy is so era specific and so you know, and they can update all that stuff, but uh, I don't know, like. I guess it's about how good the chemistry between them would be. And I, they're both good actors. They're both funny people. I think that the chemistry would probably be fine. I could see it being pretty contrived. Um, I'm not I, excited. I, here, my point is, I do agree. Is it even, I, is it even worth it as an IP to even revive is, is the, que- the bigger question you're asking. No, but, but the, the remi- remakes like that never are like, no, I mean, if they're going to do that, they should be like, what if we got Will Smith and Kevin Hart to be in In a a road comedy, in a road comedy like Trains, Planes and Automobile? Yeah, I agree. That's a better idea. I mean, that's what they did with Due Date. It was basically a remake of Trains, Planes and Automobiles, but they just had different names. But it was the same exact premise. Wacky guy clings on to uptight guy and they have to travel across the country. But I mean, also... Trains, Planes, and Automobiles was not the first fucking movie to use that formula either. I mean... No, but it was that, probably the one that most people seen. 
I yeah, take so there's no reason that the two actors couldn't work well together in a, in a movie. Does it need to be Transplanes and Automobiles? I don't think so. But, no, but, you but know, also, whatever. are you so attached to it that it's like, I don't no, know. No, it's not I, sacrosanct. I just think it's... Um, lazy. Lazy, yeah. And I don't... I think that the problem with um, approaching it from that point of view, or any movie from that point of view, where you said, let's do blah, blah, blah again... Um, but with different actors, which is funny given this the week after we recasted Jaws that we're having this conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the problem with with doing any movie from that point of view is you know that the studio is already going in thinking, well, this already sells itself. So yeah. there's only tra- so much effort we need to put into it. So what you and end up tra- doing Planes and Automobiles doesn't because that is no that is that was a movie. For adults in the 80s, like even even our generation is kind of removed from that. Like, you know, to me, that's a Thanksgiving movie that's like on TBS every Thanksgiving and and that's what it is. So, like, who are they selling it to is the real question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I think they're hoping that the people for whom that would be nostalgic are going to go see it and then the kids are going to go see it for the star power. But, yeah, that's know. not how that's going to work, but no. sure. All right. Last one here. Adam Driver is to star in Sony's sci-fi thriller 65 from Sam Raimi and the A Quiet Place writers. Cool. Uh, I mean, that sounds cool. Like, so I, I so, OK, so they're doing I feel like the headline should read. <laughs> Sam Raimi and uh, the writers of A Quiet Place team up for original sci-fi IP starring Adam Driver. Yeah, that's that's the idea. Uh, that's weird to me that Adam Driver is the lead in that story, but sure, uh, that sounds cool. Uh, yeah, I I think I think Sam Raimi, uh, I think he's a, a damn good director and. I think he's a pretty good producer. Like most of the stuff that comes out under his name is, uh, you know, at least watchable. Um, it does well. Yeah. I think it's kind of mixed, but um, it's, it's kind of like Guillermo del Toro as a producer. I'm never as excited as with, if his no, name is just slapped on there than if he's directing, but, but yes, but yeah. I don't think it's going to be a train wreck. I, I have enough confidence that it's at least going to be watchable. Right. Uh, and then, yeah, in uh, Quiet Place, I'm, you know, I'm, after A Quiet Place, I'm excited for whatever they do. I'm confused. I, how many people wrote A Quiet Place? I, I know John, did John Krasinski help write it? Or is he just one of, did he just direct? Um. Because he's not involved. I think he otherwise, just directed. I think he, he just directed because it says here, A Quiet Place writers Scott Beck and Brian Woods who will write and direct this film, 65, with Raimi producing. Oh, interesting. Okay. And it says the plot details for the original story are being kept under wraps. Sure. Um, no, I think, I mean, here's the thing. We we clamor and we rant and we rave about, you know, how everything's a reboot or a remake or whatever, um, you know, and then when we a- actually get news about, new you know an original sci-fi original whatever like a lot of times they don't do that great because it doesn't have the name recognition of the franchise like i get why there's so many reboots and remakes so i'm personally very excited for this 
Yeah. I am too. I mean, you know, Adam Driver's great and everything, so I have full confidence there. I think the the writing in A Quiet Place uh, maybe isn't as the best part of the movie, but it's they're decent Solid. with concepts and science fiction, so I, I think I, they can probably do a cool job here. I also appreciate that A Quiet Place isn't overwritten. I mean, there's definitely yeah. some exposition, but uh, I mean, that movie's minimalist as fuck. Yeah, so that'd be an interesting take to see how they approach yeah. story, um, if that's something that's, they're interested in altogether, or just in that concept. Generally, my biggest complaint about most sci-fi is there's usually a solid it minimum of 20 minutes that's just pure exposition that's completely unneeded. So, uh, you know, hopefully they they keep that aspect. Yeah. All right. Well, that pretty much covers us for the movie news that's come up recently. Let's go ahead and move into Bill and Ted Face the Music. Uh, Keith, describe to me what happens in this movie. Uh, okay, so Bill and Ted are old. Uh, okay, so the... <laughs> <laughs> this is a sequel to um, uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. This sort yeah. of uh, third installment um, taking place like 25 years after the events of uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Um, in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, they were told uh, by Rufus, played by George Carlin, um, who is sort of an arbiter from the future, uh, came back to help them uh, keep them together and keep them on their path so that eventually their band, Wild Stallions, could write the song that uh, unites the, the world and creates a utopia on Earth uh, through music. So this, in Bill and Ted Face Music, it is 25 years after these events. They're old, they're middle-aged, uh, their band was hot uh it was huge and then it fell apart um and slowly they sort of returned back to their status as uh idiot losers um oh, and playing managed, weddings and and garage yeah. kind of stuff and whatever they, they still haven't written the song uh that they were destined to write now they have teenage or early 20 something daughters um and you know they're worried about their marriages to uh, the princesses, which they pulled out of time. They're told that they have a deadline now; um, that they are destined to write the song to save the universe um, by a certain date. And so now they're feeling the pressure to actually produce it. Uh, so they decide to hijack a time machine uh, and go on one last adventure, where they will talk to their future selves um, who have presumably already written the song and they will try to steal the song from them. From themselves. Yes. yes. <laughs> Which is one of the funnier concepts from the movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is uh, written by the same writing team who's written all of them, who um, you know conceived of this thing back in the mid-80s and uh, stars... Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter uh, reprising their roles. And yeah, uh, and it's directed, um, the, you know, the director, he has a decent comedy background as well. Like, he is the same director who gave us Galaxy Quest. Yeah. Um, uh, he directed 
um, Fun with Dick and Jane, which I never saw, but I heard decent things about. Um, and Home Fries, I think. He's done some things. He's done a lot of television, mostly. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, you know, Galaxy Quest isn't, like, tone-wise too far off from a Bill and Ted kind of thing, so... No, um, yeah, because Bill and Ted is, you know, known for being kind of meta. Um, uh, it's sort of stoner comedy without being explicitly stoner. Right, yeah, it's it's kind of that's all. It's sort of like the Scooby Doo thing where you know Shaggy's high all the time because, but they don't have to say it. Yeah. Um, uh, so so yeah, is, it is kind of like uniquely in a niche where it's not Spicoli. Like, yeah, it's but like it's kid friendly stoner. Yeah, and there's also sort of a post Back to the Future thing going on as well. Yeah. Um. In in both movies now, I happen to prefer Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey to Excellent Adventure, which might be controversial to some so, people. I recently rewatched we actually watched the, the other trilogy. two. Yeah, before this to and it's a good thing we did, because damn there are some jokes I would have totally missed. Um <laughs> I'm sure there were some I did. There are some things I prefer about Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I, I like the simplicity of it. Um, yeah. In Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, they literally just go back in time to uh, to not fail a history report. Yeah, they um, go back in time and kidnap historical figures and bring them into the future where they have wacky adventures in modern day settings. Yes. And that's and, the and whole so, movie. Yeah. And so it, it's a little bit cleaner. Uh, the yeah. thing I like about Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is it's way higher concept. Oh, and yeah. It's making fun of uh, a lot of movie stuff. Like, all of the death stuff is making fun of the Seventh Seal. Um, sure. It's got some real heavy surrealist elements, um, which is well, That kid, movie's fucking crazy. Yeah. There's, I mean... As a kid, and I think when I, when I was younger, when I was, when I was very young and I saw it for the first time, I just sort of took it all in at face value. Um and then when I was a little bit older and seen a few more movies, that's when I realized how fucking weird that movie is. Bogus yeah. Journey, specifically. Um, and now, seeing it even older yet, I realize how smart it is. And how smart all of these movies are. And I think that's what really separates them from just being like high concept, high concept silly, stonery things. Is... They do make like a seventh seal reference, which is like Which is insane. Bizarre. Who is that for? Yeah. Who is that in the eighties making a fucking you know, like young adult pseudo stoner comedy? Yeah. Who is gonna get that that pull? You know, yeah, that is I, that is for the Swedish the, art film. <laughs> exactly. That is like I like I I'm familiar enough with the imagery, but I have actually sure. never seen it. You know what I mean? But I still got the joke. So I mean, like, like that's for them, which I kind of appreciate. And, and I a think lot a of lot of the humor in all of the movies is for them. I think what I've liked about that writing team and uh, you know the movies going through is that their biggest the the audience they're trying to please most is themselves, and I think that's created a certain sort of um, idiosyncratic uh, quality to that franchise that yes. is unique to them, even though they definitely fit in an era and a genre and 
um, you know, are distinctly kind of 80, late 80s, early 90s films dealing with kind of like California uh, stereotypes and that kind of stuff. I think that they are the reason people still talk about those movies at all, because there were a lot of kind of like goofy sci-fi teen things from that time that nobody talks about now. Um, but the reason that th- those movies have endured is I think that they're they're smart. They're well-written. Even though they're weird as fuck sometimes. I Something think- I like about th- these movies, too, is uh, that you don't necessarily have with a lot of stuff of this genre. Is that they they have a weird sweetness, which isn't, you know, isn't necessarily like... Uh, uh, I think ultimately, you know, the, the the philosophy of these movies is good, and they they respect the characters. Like they're they're not going to sell the characters out for a for joke. a joke. Yeah, which I mean, and there's plenty of jokes, and they do. You know, the it's not that these characters aren't funny and don't. You know, they're dumb as shit, but but they're not going to. They're not going to just throw out a joke that's going to pull the rug out from under all of the momentum that's already going on. Right. And I think the overall message of the films, all of the movies, and this last one maybe even most, is is this kind of overarching message of positivity and, you know, just yeah. be excellent to each other. And they're very humanistic. Um, and, you know, a lot of the reason why people were really excited about this sequel. So we should probably start talking about it specifically. Yeah. Um, what did you think of Bill and Ted Face the Music? Especially after having recently seen the other two, because it's been a minute since I've seen the other Bill and Ted's. Uh, so my initial gut reaction was, oh, man, these guys are old. And and uh, uh, also, like, I, okay, so something I appreciate about this movie in particular was these characters are old. And the movie let them age. Uh, so mm. even even though they're still sort of arrested development and they're still kind of dumb fuck-ups, you know, they're they're married, they have daughters, like they they have aged. Like they, you know, they're yeah. not still acting exactly the same. Um, mm. which is something I really appreciated. Um And they oddly, work that into the story. That's a big part of what the movie yeah. is 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 talking about being middle aged and and yeah. changing life expectations and blah, and blah, so blah. that's something I really appreciate about this movie. Whereas I think I think this type of franchise from the eighties is hard to reboot from that for that reason. It's like you know, well we we you know a lot of times I think when they try to do this, the characters stay sort of static. Yeah. Um, and I feel like there was a whole life uh, for Bill and Ted in between their their time traveling adventures, which was nice. Mm-hmm. Um, just as far as acting notes go, uh, oddly enough, Alex Winter fit into his role um, a little bit more seamlessly than Keanu did, and and I think it's just because Keanu has been so high profile for so long. Um, yeah, I definitely i i i agree with that. I felt like. Winter was a little bit more hungry for this, yeah, throughout yeah. the film, and was working it a little, a little harder. Now, I, I also think it partially he's naturally comes, just a very, he's a very funny and good actor. 
Yeah. Because people probably haven't seen him in other things besides the Bill and Ted movies and maybe Lost Boys. But if you see him in interviews and stuff, he's not like that. (laughs) Well, he he gave up acting and has been mostly directing. Mostly directing. He's done a few um, uh, pretty well-ish known um, documentaries and things. And and apparently um, he actually took some acting lessons to like sort of beef up for this role for for Bill and Ted Face the Music. So you know because he didn't want to go in totally cold. So he yeah. you know he like uh, uh, stuff. Uh, I I yeah. So I really liked. Again, I really liked the tone of this movie. I think this movie's pretty funny at times too. Um, uh, there is in particularly. Uh, Dennis Caleb McCoy fucking killed me. Um, yeah, uh, the evil robot that's sent from the future to destroy them who ends up being so um, good. Really uh, neurotic. Very, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> and he, and his character design is weirdly a lot like Frieza from Dragon Ball Z. Oh, Don't know if that was intentional. That. Uh I see it now. I didn't think about that when I saw it, but you're totally right. So that that's played. Uh, he's played by Noho Hank from Barry, which goddamn. Oh, okay. I, I have, yeah, that I mean, guy's great. He's so fucking good. He's gonna be. He's gonna be that character actor that's in a thousand things that you're just like, oh fuck, it's Noho Hank. I mean, here's the thing. I think this movie is just like the. I think it's very much in the spirit of the first two, where it's it's sort of this sweet funny movie um that's not taking itself too seriously and kind of knows exactly what it is like it knows yeah. it's it's a uh, low budget kind of uh uh you know what i mean uh but it's not low brow necessarily like it's not all it's not dick and fart jokes which is refreshing i i don't know i felt like this was just like it was just like listening to an album that you haven't heard for a long time and you're just like, oh yeah, this kind of rocks. Like, I I really enjoyed this movie. Um, that isn't to say it isn't without its flaws, but I feel like the thing about Bill and Ted is the flaws are kind of the thing that make it shine in a weird way. Yeah, I think I kind of know what you mean. They're sort of scrappy. Like, I think all three movies... I can't say specifically for the third one, but I know the first two movies had a lot of reshoots with their endings because they could never quite land the plane. And I think you've always been able to tell that with this franchise. And I think that also includes this one, too. Um, I, so my biggest complaint about this movie is the ending. Right. Uh, and, and maybe and, at this point, that's part of the meta humor is that well, is that okay. these movies just never know exactly how to land the plane. But so I. I I want to say nice things first. I think that yeah, the, I have uh, specific issues that I want to get into. So we, I might have to head to some spoiler territory, but um, uh, well, yeah, if we have go to, ahead, we'll, go ahead and say your piece. We could open that up. Um, I enjoyed the movie a lot. I think it was really funny. I was, I was nervous going in because whenever you, yeah. whenever you get these long, you know, long breaks between a sequel and it's all about, you know, dredging up nostalgia for cinema's past. And like I was just saying, with comedy, it's a lot of the time, it's a time and place kind of thing. And there was only a couple of years between the first and second Bill and Ted as far as release date. I know that the first yeah. one was shelved for a few it years, was, so it was actually it was filmed like, earlier than it came out. Oh, really? But, um, the first one was like, it came out like 80... 80 it came out in 89, 80. but I think it was... No, it came out in 89, but it was oh, shot fun. in 86, 87. 
Okay, and then the second one came out in like ninety, like ninety, ninety one. So yeah, it's yeah. only like a couple of years later. And but now it's it, interesting, you know, it's- and Red Le- Red Letter Media pointed this out when they did a review of the other two movies that I watched recently. How distinctly, like just within that tiny window of time, like distinctly eighties one movie is, and distinctly nineties the other one is. Um, yeah, it's true. It's it's crazy. Like yeah. Th- and, those movies are such a time capsule. Like, what? Oh right. my god! There's this joke in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. It's like, what they, what Rufus brings uh, back people for like history class. So he brings people back from time, and he taught. He brings back one of the guys from Faith No More. Yeah, the guitarist from like, Faith No More. Yeah, who started a, a like center for theology, which is such a funny joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, so I was nervous going in because, you know, how do you recreate the magic? Blah, blah, blah. Is this just going to be all nothing but callbacks and, and whatever? But I think that the writing team did a really good job of developing these characters further, like you mentioned. I think that the plot, while not it's as messy. complicated or not as... Um, I don't know, maybe not as creative as the other movies. I think it's good enough. Um, I, I like the idea because I guess the major conceit or what changes this universe a little bit is that by not writing the song, not only do they not unite the world, but also it, it messes up time space in and of itself and yes, everything yeah. will collapse in on itself and people are, you know, shifting through time um, with no rhyme or reason until they write this song. I thought that was a good enough excuse to kind of keep things moving, keep things rolling along. Uh, I love the robot, love that conceit, um, and uh, the set pieces in and of themselves are fun. I think the best stuff in the movie is their interactions with their future selves every time yes. they go to another to another time period, whether yeah, it's you know, just a couple of years apart. My biggest complaint about the movie is I think we could have actually used maybe a little more of that. And I think there's a yeah. there's a couple plot threads that we could have used a little less of. I, I like I like I'm not the- so into the Kristen Shawl thing. Yeah. I don't think I, she I, adds I also, a ton to the movie. I also not that I have a problem with Kristen Shawl. I love Kristen Shawl, but I think she was a little miscast. Yeah, um, I, I kind like, of agree. I think you know they were trying to sort of have this movie's version of a Rufus, yes, and she's but, just but not do it. You know, they if they if you're gonna do this version movie's version of a Rufus, I feel like uh, I would have loved to see them try to cast sort of a this generation's Rufus. I, if I was yeah. casting this, I would have cast Sarah Silverman as that part. So hardcore, my head hurt. Uh, yeah, I guess. I kind of think with the, the character, the way it's written, is going to apply the same way no matter what. I just don't think it's a – I think it's an extraneous character. It doesn't do a whole lot. No, um, I, I, and here's the thing. I kind of – I agree with you, and I also think um, – I also think that a little bit about the, the wives, the princesses. There's this uh, – It's and it's not that I didn't like their characters. I actually really liked the scene where they're in therapy. Um, yeah. What I didn't care for was there's sort of this convoluted reason to get them time traveling too, but well, there's like a we, B, there's a B but, plot that's developing but, with them where a, they're supposed to sort of stop themselves or something. No, there's a there's a C and a D plot, and that's yeah. and they never really like, totally develop. Yeah, and that that's the only thing is like if we're gonna 
do that, let's see them on their adventure a little bit too. But I, I mm-hmm. feel like we get that enough with Bill and Ted. And then there's also the B plot of uh, Bill and Ted's daughters, um, Billy and Thea. Yeah. They go through time to try and form this ultimate band to help their dads write the song. And, and I feel like there's enough between the A and the B plot that, that we didn't really need the C and the D plot. <laughs> no, I agree. And I was at first, when we got into the movie, I was a little unsure about uh, the Billy and Thea thing, uh, played by uh, Samara Weaving, who people might have recognized from The Babysitter or uh, um, Ready or Not. And then uh, Bridget Lundy Payne plays Billy. And they're kind of doing these Bill and these like very broad Bill and Ted impressions. And at first I was like, it's a little cringy, but the, a, as the movie kind of progresses and I see their role in it and the movie actually gives them more and more to do on their own, yeah. I was warmed to them. Is it a full passing of the torch, which I think this movie's trying to sort of do? I don't know about that, but um, I did warm to them, to their characters by the time the movie was over. Yeah, I felt I felt pretty much the same way. It was at first I was like, "Ooh, is this going to be cringy?" But then, like, they don't. The characters are well written enough that there's there's enough going on there that there that it's not like it doesn't hinge on them doing these imitations. Yeah, yeah, they they kind of let the characters. You know, even though they're very similar, uh, they they kind of become their own thing, which is nice. And one of the things that's kind of cool about the Bill and Ted movies altogether is that while, you know, it's always about Bill and Ted primarily, they're always kind of ensemble movies. And there's always mm-hmm. these gigantic casts around them. And they have these, you know, these this kind of Island of Misfit Toys quality to, like, you know, all the people they sort of collect around their lives. And um, this movie sort of has the same thing. They bring back Death, who's very funny in the movie again. I think they reintegrated him really well. Um, mm-hmm. The ending is a big mess. <laughs> I'll say that. I think it's not. It's not. It doesn't ruin it, but it is. It is basically and now just a bunch of stuff until the movie's over. Yeah, it's like all these hanging plot threads that they just like kind of just mush together. Yeah, in so, one big set piece. Uh, all right, I'm gonna. This might be a little spoilery, but I'm gonna try to not. Not be too spoilery. The thing that okay. really bothered me about the ending was uh, in the previous two movies, the ending, their success sort of hinges on these uh, time travel like paradox ideas. Like uh, in the first one, they're like, oh, well, what if we found my dad's keys and we hit him here in the future so or in the past so that we know they're here. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then the keys just happen to be there. Uh, yeah. You know, and then in the second one, it's like, oh, okay, well let's remember to set up the cage. And, and like, uh, I liked that conceit and they did it for the first two movies, but this one doesn't have that. And that's like, I sure the ending is a big sort of, kind of fluffy mess but i wish they had at least played into that time, time paradox, paradox conceit. they do a little in one sequence where they're running away from their future selves and they put buckets over their heads so that their future <laughs> selves don't remember how they escaped but th- this is but that's not 
the ending. It's not the climax of the movie. It's just and, the one and scene. And this is a specific trope that they do at the ending of two movies. So like the pattern yeah. is established. So really, and and I only would have noticed this watching them back to back to back. Right. Um, yeah. But it still was noticeable that they broke that pattern. And so that was a little frustrating for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, overall, though, I think this movie is a whole lot of fun. Um, it, it, I think it instills the right amount of nostalgia without banking on it. And, you know, I think it's kind of the, the low stakes broad comedy that, that we kind of need right now. Like, yeah, you know, everyone I've heard who've, who's watched this has just been like, man, it was just nice to like, not worry about anything for a little bit. Yeah. It's a, it's a breath of fresh air and it, it, it exhumes positivity and, and, uh, uh, and good it, vibes it, and it's and it funny um yeah. i think i laughed enough i mean there are some places when it's not as funny as it thinks it is but for the most part it's it's pretty funny and it, it is smart there's a couple things that i actually laughed out loud at and you know it's, it's yeah it's i was laughing pretty that. pretty well into the like the first sequence when they when they play when they're trying to they think the the music that is going to <laughs> like unite the world is literally music from every part of the world played simultaneously yeah, with a Mongolian throat singing. And the yeah, along and with it. trumpet and bagpipes and everything. And it, it also that, wasn't a terrible song. Which was no, it was good. It just yeah, I, that was funny enough that I was like, I felt in good hands at that point. I I also uh, really liked. That's another callback. Was uh, the the. Ted's little brother, Deacon, marries the stepmom from the first two movies who, like, in the first movie, she was Ted's mom, stepmom. In the second movie, she was Bill's stepmom, which is just, like, this ongoing ongoing joke. joke. Yeah. And uh, there's only four actors that have been in all three movies. Uh, Keanu Reeves, Alex Winters, the guy who plays uh, Ted, Bill's, Keanu Reeves' dad, and this stepmom character. So I thought that was really fun that they brought her back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I recommend it. If you end up um, either watching this VOD online or through Amazon Prime or whatever, um, or if you do happen to live in an area that's showing it in a drive-in, that's a great yeah. way to see it, too. I think it's yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah, I think fun. this would be a really fun drive-in movie. And, I mean, yeah. this movie There was is- somewhere that was showing it alongside... Uh, uh, I follow Alex Winter on on Twitter, and he retweeted a, a drive-in that was showing it with Scott Pilgrim, and I, I oh, thought that was God. really That's good. That's such a good double feature. Yeah, that'd be yeah. so fun. It, I mean, I think also, and we didn't really talk about this. The thing that really sells the this movie is, uh, even though it's been a while, there is a lot of chemistry between Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter, and you can yeah. tell there's a lot of love between them, and that that made this movie just super fun to watch. It's just well, like, this is a project they've been trying to get off the ground forever. This is like Ghostbusters three level production hell. Like, oh, really? Th- yeah. This wasn't just like something they decided to do for fun just recently. This is one of those like script rewrite after script rewrite after project moving from person to person, blah, blah, blah. They've I mean, been constantly talking about doing this movie for as long as I can remember, really. So, um, you can tell it's it is a, a project of love and 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 yeah. I think that love comes out of the screen and you you can it's palatable and and I think you know there's a lot lot worse things you could spend your time on right now so I 
personally, I'm giving this a B plus. I give it the same. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about the streaming homework then, which is the documentary Dear Zachary, um, and which I guess I uh, uh, assigned to you. Um, but neither of us had seen it, I believe, right? No, I hadn't seen this previously. No, I didn't even really know what it was about. I knew that it was a documentary. Um, but I knew it was upsetting, but I had no idea how right. or why. Yeah, and boy is it. Um, this is a documentary that was made in uh, 2008. Filmmaker uh, Kurt Kuhn, I believe that's how you pronounce his last name. Uh, and it's kind of a personal documentary of sorts about uh, a man uh, who goes by the name Andrew Bagby, who was this community character, this person that everyone sort of liked. Everyone had a good story about Andrew. Very affable, funny guy. He was the best man at like five different weddings. Everyone sort of trusted him. He was a doctor, young guy. Yeah, he was uh, 28. Yeah, so pretty young. So he ends up in this toxic relationship with another doctor in um, Canada, in Newfoundland, and ends up leading to his murder uh, by this woman. Or at least all the evidence seems to suggest that it's this woman. And before the court proceedings even begin, it comes out that this woman is pregnant with their unborn child and the parents of Andrew want to maintain as much of a relationship as they have to with the person who they strongly believe murdered their son in order to have a relationship with their grandchild. And with the hopes that when she goes to prison, um, as all the evidence stacks up against her, that they can have a smooth transition to having a full-time relationship and guardianship of Andrew's child, um, which is sort of the thing that sort of fuels their hope and their memory of Andrew. Now, the, there's sort of this other plot within a plot within a plot, sort of a Russian doll of a movie, where the director is making this kind of, this documentary, specifically a sort of a video diary or video journal of everybody and their story of why they loved Andrew so much to eventually show to his son, Zachary. And that all kind of gets upturned towards the last third of the movie. And I don't exactly want to say why, yeah. but um, this movie is depressing AF. Yeah. Uh, so I, I didn't realize how old this movie was when we watched it. I didn't realize it, you know, um, and it, I think that the thing that, beside you know, besides the actual fucking story, I think one of the reasons this movie is so, hits so hard is it feels very intimate. It feels yeah. like it, it is, it feels like a private video, you know, if because a lot of it is like comprised of home movies and and um, it just feels very intimate it feels it feels voyeuristic like it's almost wrong to be to be watching some of this stuff and i understand the the purpose for it but like 
as I was watching it, it was like, even the stuff that's less depressing, I, I was a little like, ooh, I don't, I don't know if this is for me to see. Um, mm-hmm. And then as the story unfolds and it just gets sadder and more fucked up, um, I, I mean, ultimately this is, this movie is a, is about the failing of the court systems and, and, and how, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if I want to say this, but how easy it is for certain systems to be taken advantage of. Um, yeah. Yeah. I and mean, they don't get movie. to that right away. I mean, that, that's sort of, that's the theme that sort of unfolds, sort of blossoms out of the narrative, which is really smart filmmaking. Um, mm. You know, to because, and maybe this is a trick the movie plays almost too many times, but the movie is constantly sort of changing dynamics. It's sort of, sort of almost a deconstruction of the documentary form. Um, in a way, there is an experimental edge to the movie. It, well, where, it, it almost, and at first, I it, wasn't so sure about it. It took me a while to kind of see what it was going for. Because there's this sort of tug of war yeah. between, you know, this home video footage and Andrew's this great guy. And here's all these personal anecdotes about him. And like this, this is your dad. And I'm I'm telling you, Zachary, and I'm always weary of when the director of a documentary like puts himself in the movie too much. I don't necessarily mind it, but uh, my my big thing is I, I always or, sort or of specifically when the documentarian is. frames everything around their experience. Then I, I yeah I I think unless you're Michael Moore or Louis Thoreau, like for the most part, mm, don't even, do that. Yeah. However, I think this movie ended up making good use of that for reasons. Yes, and I think that's the, the other reason this movie feels so personal is the documentarian really lets you feel his emotions. Like you really feel his yeah. sadness. And Cause he was a personal times, friend of, of this Andrew fellow of the, uh, yeah. And you, you also feel his rage and, and at, there were times. Mm-hmm. And again, this was before, before everything sort of unfolds somewhere near the beginning of the movie i was like okay well we're definitely hearing his side of the story and you know there were times yeah. when i almost felt bad for uh uh andrew's accused murderer um because the, you know there were times where i'm like okay well th- this is cl- so clearly biased um but again i think i think that it in it, it, for the sake of a movie, I think it works because because of the way the story unfolds. Um, right. Man. So, and that's why I say that this, this movie movie's, is very it's kind of complicated on a lot of levels, and I'm I'm specifically sort of analyzing it right now just on a formal level um, mm-hmm. uh, to see exactly where it works and where it doesn't. Um, and like I said at the beginning, there's a bit of a tug of war between the emotional story stuff of like, dear Zachary, I'm going to tell you about your father and this sort of cold case murder mystery. And it's a little jarring when it kind of cuts between them. And I felt at a point I was like, is this a little exploitive? Like that we're we're trying to sort of like wedge our way into a lurid murder mystery with this, this sort of uh, um, manipulative um, 
Exactly. It, it story almost about felt like this guy. At a, at a certain point, it almost feels like uh, a smear campaign against this this woman and. Uh, but again, those reasons why become very clear. Uh, here's the, yeah. I, 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 I'll, and that's interesting for the director to purposely make the film that way because he's he and maybe he doesn't even know he's doing this entirely, but he's sort of no, because the built the, the, the twists are built in. They, they're very intentional and he yes. withhold withholds information specifically for emotional impact which in and of itself is manipulative in a sort of filmmakery kind of way and maybe that's okay i mean a documentary is not is not a a documentary is supposed to have a point of view and yes. a documentary can take advantage of style and things like that it's not entirely about just presenting facts um i i, I feel like this movie does have kind of an amateurish quality about it um, but I do think, like you said, it's it's put together in such a way that it that even though it it feels like he does know how to put together a story. Yeah, uh, and he does. I don't know think the how- storytelling is amateurish. I think it's actually it's pretty well thought out. I mean, it's mapped out specifically for these beats and these emotional impacts yes. and stuff like that. And the I think the editing is is fine. It is. I think the f- documentary form has advanced so much just recently, like with the advancement of like Netflix and these docu series mm-hmm. and serial and all of this stuff. The sort of in- people they're sort of pumping these things out now, and I think there's sort of a slickness that we expect from documentaries that that's true is kind of relatively recent. Like I think in 2008, unless you were a Michael Moore or or a Ken Burns or somebody with like a lot of clout. Documentaries are usually always pretty low budget and pretty much look like this. Yeah, I guess I guess that's fair. I am kind of judging it based off that. But here's the thing. Ultimately, I think this is a really important was a really important story to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you have to l- literally be made of stone to not feel something while you're watching this. Like I yeah. It is, it is so raw and emotional, and like, I mean, I really, you really feel like you get to know his friend, um, and just everything that happens is so tragic and upsetting that, like, God, I just like it. It left me feeling kind of helpless. Um, yeah, like, like I, I really felt his loss. Like, I mm-hmm. really felt. I, I really felt what happened. So in, you know, in, in with Total Strangers. So in that aspect, this movie's incredibly successful. Uh, I, I think it is both a fitting tribute to his friend uh, and and conveys the, the emotion that he went through. It, it conveys that sadness and that anger um, in extremely effective ways. I agree. I, I was kind of so-so about it for the first half or so. Mm-hmm. And then once I once, once the movie it. kind of found its footing <laughs> and yeah, once it, all the reveals were laid out and by the time it was done, I was totally devastated. It's a really well-made, really well-thought-out documentary. 
And uh, I mean, it's Andrew. It's all, I mean, Andrew's parents, uh, David and Kathleen Bagby, should get like grandparents of the millennium award. Oh my God, best yeah, I mean, grandparents ever. Jesus, um, uh, multiple times this movie yeah. made me cry, <laughs> and and literally made me like like scream. What the fuck? No, like right. Like I would. Uh, even just thinking about it is like getting me upset. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want that, um, uh, watch Dear Zachary. I, but it, I also think it is a it is a, a a good story, and it is told with a lot of love. Like it's it's not just pure misery. It's not it's not going right. to. You know and it's not I mean? just pure murder mystery either, because the way it was kind of setting itself up, I thought it was going to end on some and we'll never really know kind of ending. Mm. Um, and that is not how it ends. We definitely know all the things we know. Um, yeah. And, yeah, uh, I, but, but it's also a labor of love. And yeah, uh, you, uh, uh, again, you can feel that love come out of this movie. And, and ultimately, that's the message of it. it. It, you know, is is of love, and 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 so even though it is pretty bleak, it uh, it it, it it's not bleak for the entire runtime. Like there, there's enough sweetness and humanity within it to sort of pull you through. Agreed. And what did you have set for our next Netflix or our next streaming homework, rather? Sorry, I just I still feel like a little weird. That's <laughs> uh, a heavy movie. Um, it's really it weird is. to transition from like even thinking about this movie to anything else. Um, I recently saw that. Uh, God, this just sounds so weird going into this. Um, there was a, a, a Nicholas Cage joint from 2013 that has been trending on Netflix. For the past mm-hmm. week or so, called the Frozen Ground. Um, so you know, it's it's based on an Alaskan serial killer, um, starring Nicolas Cage, John Cusack. Uh, so I, you know, I thought it'd be interesting. Let's see why this is. You know, maybe we can figure out why this is hitting right now um, with streaming audiences. And what a streaming service is this on? Uh, it is uh, currently in Netflix's top ten. So weird because it's not a new movie. It's like 2013. Yeah, and it's currently like num- number five and has been for for a solid week. So yeah, uh, I kind of want to see what's up. We should find some random ass Netflix thing and just try and get it to trend somehow. Isn't isn't that the entire point of the streaming homework? The Netflix <laughs> homework is like get people to watch them with us and engage with us, right? And, yeah, if anybody right. does watch these movies or any of the movies that we talk about, you can email us at uh, mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also contact us at our different social medias, at mcguffinpod on Twitter and Instagram specifically. I also have Twitter and Instagram. You can follow me there at BC Cassidy. Um, if you're listening to the podcast on the website, mcguff.in, um, be sure to check out the other articles and a review is written by the rest of the MacGuffin staff. And Keith, you have social media. What are you doing on it? 
<sighs> Sometimes. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Keith Foster Kid. You can also follow me on Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. And you can follow my art account at Sticky Note Aesthetic. Yes. And I think that's probably it for the episode. Be excellent to each other. And Please. party on, dudes. Bye.